Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Uh, these are still coming to you from on the road. I'm still out in Santa Barbara training. I was down in Marshall with Revis and Ben uh, for a few days. Got some great flying and a lot of Red Bull logistics stuff sorted out. So that was fantastic. Uh, back up in Santa Barbara. I'll be here for another couple days. I'm actually right in the middle of a three-day simulation, but I just wanted to bang out this intro so we can still get a show up on time. Uh great show for you today with Travis Burke. Uh, A lot of you, I'm sure, are familiar with that name. Uh, I follow him, started following him a few years ago on Instagram, uh, now along with almost uh, a million people, and he's got 800 and something thousand followers. So he wouldn't like this term, but he's one of these people uh, referred to as an influencer and is an athlete and photographer, uh, really talented photographer, and shoots surf and skate and climbing and all kinds of uh sports uh, kind of i guess more on the extreme end of things um but recently got into flying and i always think it's fun to talk to folks who are really just getting into it and uh see what their perspective is uh he and his good friend who manages his business david hatfield drove up here from san diego and we had a really nice uh xc flight here in santa barbara together and then we sat down and had a talk in some ways, I feel like this was kind of a missed opportunity because we, we had this really interesting talk on the way up to launch just about you know the pros and cons of social media. And as I've alluded to in the last few episodes, uh, I really feel like you know uh, Facebook has pretty much a monopoly on social media, owning Instagram and WhatsApp and uh, clearly played a major factor in our last election. And um, anyway, I think the business model for these companies that uh, uh, facilitate data transaction, uh, it's free to the user, but uh, that's how they make their money, is a really flawed and toxic um, business model. You name it, Google, Amazon. Uh, anyway, that's not my job and that's not what we talk about here on the show, but I just, I do think that world is pretty fascinating and I wanted to get into, because I have quite a strangled relationship with that and I imagine many of you do uh, with the addiction side of it and just the sponsorship side and how to be authentic and still use it or not, or should we not use it at all? And he and I had a pretty good talk about that and then we didn't really talk about it. I just felt like it was kind of complicated uh, to talk about in the actual show and didn't think you would be interested in it but then I realized when we were done that if I'm interested in it probably you all or many of you all are as well so um, I apologize for that and it is kind of a missed opportunity. The other thing that we decided uh, actively to not talk about and then also thought man maybe we should have um, he was given a wing by Ozone uh, right up front very early on uh, Today, you know, well, when we recorded this, the day we had our XC flight from here in Santa Barbara was literally his first XC. Um, he's, Travis has about 100 hours, but most of those are ridge soaring at at, uh, at Torrey Pines, which, uh, you know, I've told some other people and, you know, folks, a lot of people would say like, oh, those kind of hours don't even really count, which is probably an interesting thing to, you know, discuss. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and weigh in on that. You know, certainly launching and landing is always good hours and uh, it doesn't matter where you get them. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is, you know, very, very novice pilot just shot a big commercial with uh, with Toyota 
that featured paragliding. And so that was another thing that we didn't really get into because uh, I thought, gosh, man, if people find out that you're getting wings uh, and you're just learning how to fly, that's probably going to infuriate people. Um, but, you know, like the with the super final just wrapped up and I would imagine there's only a couple of the top maybe 30 pilots down there at the super final, at the super final like the best pilots in the world that are actually getting wings for free uh you know there might be the the homie discount or the team pilot discount that kind of thing but um you know it's folks like travis that have a ton of reach and that that can get it and really in my opinion should because they can bring a whole new audience to our sport and grow the sport and so it was uh pretty proactive for ozone to see that um and then i also get a ton of questions all the time from people going hey how do i get you know can you introduce me to so-and-so and how do i get sponsored and my usual response is like hey man just get a better job and buy the gear it's a lot of work um and it's you know when when i introduce folks like that it's you know it's kind of very rarely a win-win um you know the chances for under livery are through the roof uh you know it's unless you're really that's what you do like travis does if you're a content provider um then you know how to do that if you don't it's pretty tough it's pretty hard to make you know getting a free wing and covering that 3500 euros in terms of content uh and providing that roi back to a company is is pretty hard to do so um anyway that was another subject we didn't really discuss and again i I apologize for that i I do feel like this was kind of a missed opportunity but we did cover a lot of ground Um, not a lot of it flying but mostly you know the business side and uh the photo side and you know he's had a very interesting uh arc to his business which uh, i thoroughly enjoyed so i think you will as well uh, before we get to the show a couple little bits of housekeeping one is i'm a little sensitive to uh you know, I try to get guests from, that are representative from all over the world. I haven't been able to do that since I've been on the road. I've got a ton of great ones lined up. Wolfgang Seiss, a hang gliding show, and uh, Marcella, who just broke the, the female distance record down in Brazil, and Maxime Bellman, who just released his new book, Performance Flying. And I've actually got a review of that in the next Cross Country Magazine. So some great interviews coming up. I just have not had the internet to uh, be able to do those as I typically do on Skype. So I've had to find people more locally to do these and and that those happen to be americans like with the last show with rob spore we've got another show coming up with jk nichols about tem he's an uh, airline pilot who's you know that threatened air management that they use uh, flying airplanes is super relevant and i think pretty interesting to free flight so uh bear with us i'm sorry we haven't had the kind of typical mix we usually do but that's just been logistically tough with with me being on the road uh, the other thing i just want to bring up the some of the advice uh in the rob spore show which i totally agree with um i got some feedback from some listeners that you know felt like the advice about trees are always your friend and the advice about uh reserves maybe needed to be expanded on a little bit you know that they maybe we came across in the in the podcast that they were infallible I don't really think we came across that way, but um, you know, certainly uh, those two things are, you know, for the most part, work really well. Trees typically are your friend, and uh, and reserves do work, just period. So. 
but um, of course they aren't infallible. And uh, these guys reached out and had had pretty serious accidents, uh, one from a reserve, another one from a tree. Of course that happens, but I still think the messaging is, um, is totally accurate. You know, that you make a low, rash, really quick turn, low to the ground to not hit a tree, your chances of getting really hurt by spinning the glider or something go way up. I'd rather just, you know, I'd, for the most part, you can just fly into that tree and have much better odds. And then the other thing is just reserves, just hands down, period. Um, they are actually pretty infallible. Of course, there are, you know, uh, your your risks are still, you know, it's, it's free flight. You still have the risk of something going wrong. But for the most part, they work really well and will at least, you know, instead of death or a broken back, you know, you're looking at an ankle or something else. So, um Anyway, I, but I did, I appreciated that feedback. They're absolutely correct. They're not infallible and, you know, good things to discuss. I think that's it with the housekeeping. Uh, I am right now transitioning us over from Patreon, uh, as I've said in the last couple shows, to a, our own subscription service. So that will be live here any day. But as I've said before, just stick where you are for right now until we get that all solidified and tested and, and making it work. So uh, we're getting close and... Yep. Also, the X-Alps is getting close. We're uh, closing down here quite a bit less than three months to go. So stay tuned for more exciting uh, content coming out of that whole crazy madness. Please enjoy this show for now with Travis Burke. Cheers. Travis, uh, thanks for coming on the mayhem. It was really cool having a flight with you today. That was that was really neat with David, and uh, it's good good to see you guys up here in, in Santa Barbara. And always special for me to be able to do uh, you know quote unquote live show, have you sitting here in the in the uh, glamping mobile. But uh, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Super stoked to be out here. We had a crazy flight, my first kind of cross country, so that was exciting and. Yeah, stoked to be here. Yeah, that was uh, special to share the sky with you, knowing you hadn't really gone XC. So that was that was really fun. Um, I thought we'd start with you know you and I were talking today after our first flight about some of the things that kind of took you down this road. But pretend you're at a party and you're introducing yourself. How do you describe yourself to somebody that doesn't know like what you do and 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 who you are? Yeah, I guess I would say I'm a photographer, athlete, and content creator. Okay. And does the is is the new terminology is influencer? Do you kind of with that? You wouldn't say that at a party, I think. But is that kind of the is that how that works? I don't typically like to use that myself, but it is a term that I think would describe what I do pretty well. Yeah, but I just try and approach it different. I'm a photographer by trade, so just so happen to have built an audience on social media. And how did how did that all happen? Was your background in, in photography? Did you study it in school or how did you get into this? Yeah, I guess I kind of started in the, I grew up in San Diego. I grew up in the surf and skate industry, skateboarding, and just had a background. I always loved to try different sports, a little bit of everything. So mountain biking and rock climbing and riding a unicycle, almost anything that kind of just pushed me kind of mentally and physically after high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted something creative, hands-on, and hadn't found that yet, so I didn't go straight into college and started working at 
different warehouses uh, for surfing and skateboarding and doing a little bit of everything, uh, bagging groceries at grocery stores, being a busboy at restaurants. Um, even one of my more classic jobs was a fire safety job. And through the night, we would go up into these restaurants after they shut down the kitchen and actually crawl up into the grease traps and the ventilation systems. Ooh. It was still super hot from the stoves and ovens being on all day. And we would just scrape the grease out of the insides of these things with cockroaches and rats and it gets in your hair oh, and we're spraying grim. chemicals uh, to try and get the grease, kind of break down the grease and you're just inhaling that stuff. And we do that from about nine o'clock at night till six in the morning. And Ooh. then we go, me and my buddy would jump in the water, do a quick surf to try and get the grease off. And I'd uh, go to school and I was doing a little bit of random community college stuff at the time. But it wasn't until my parents were actually hiking the Pacific Crest Trail from the border of Mexico all the way up to Canada. They're in their 50s and 60s. And I didn't think they'd really get very far. But I told them if they had made it to Yosemite National Park, I'd come up and visit them. They had a decent amount of experience backpacking, but that's a gnarly hike for anybody. So a lot of the people that tried are in their mid-20s, just out of college. What's the full distance on that? Because they did the full thing, right? They started at the border? Yeah, I border don't remember. It's a couple thousand miles. Yeah. And it ended up, they ended up completing it, and it took just over five and a half months full-time every single day. Like They put in about... I think they average 18 miles a day but wow. like 40 pound packs and good for all, them all different types of terrain you could imagine deserts and snow and uh once you get up beyond to oregon it's just wet and rainy and miserable and yeah i've gained a lot more respect for him after that I mean, was there a, I, I know this is about you but was there what was their background were they hikers were they you know outdoorsy people or is this just on a whim or did they you know they're a little more prepared than that. Yeah, definitely outdoorsy. We grew up camping. We had a little tent trailer and we do, you know, fishing with my dad and different trips since as long as I could remember. So always loved the outdoors. They skied. That's how they actually met was skiing. And so always outdoorsy people. And basically their, their retirement uh, trip for themselves was the Pacific Crest Trail. So cool. they planned it for quite a few years. They did the John Muir Trail as like training um, and successfully did that. So they had some warm up. They had about four years of planning before they actually did it. So it wasn't just out of nowhere, but at the same time, there's still so many variables that come into play with something like that, that, uh, yeah, it, it was impressive. Was it really good for them? Yeah, I it mean, was. as a couple and, uh, you know, I mean, they, obviously they've been together a long time, but. Yeah, I think, uh. Uh, they say, I think with any long distance backpacking trip or even road trip, I spent four years in a van traveling around, but any relationship where you're with somebody 24 seven stuck in these tiny confined spaces, you go through the highs and lows and sure. can't really get away from each other, even if you want to, um, really test you. So I think for them and for most people who do something like that, it'll either, you'll come out stronger and kind of knowing that you're, toast. you're fully in it and compatible or you'll come out and know that you're it's not really working and kind of split from there but for them it all worked out and yeah they they do really well together they they do pretty much everything together so um yeah it was a great experience probably i think for them experience of a lifetime so 
uh, yeah, it was really cool. But to get back to uh, the story, I told them I'd meet them in Yosemite National Park if they even made it that far. And after a couple weeks, they told me, you know, they're getting close. So I decided, I was working all those random jobs, had some extra money, decided I'd buy some over-the-top camera. I had no idea how to use it, but I was like, oh, I'm going to Yosemite. I'll be Ansel Adams and take all these pretty pictures. And so I packed up my truck. I had a little Toyota Tacoma with a camper shell and threw all my gear in there and decided to do a little solo road trip up to Yosemite. Spent time with them, hung out, and... After that, kind of just stuck around Yosemite and hiked Half Dome. And what I realized with photography is instead of just walking past a scene and acknowledging and being like, wow, this is really pretty, and then continuing on, it really made me stop and slow down and try and capture it. So I'd be with the new camera, I'd be like, how do I get the composition and the angle and the colors? And I really spent more time just absorbing it, kind of in the moment and trying to capture that in the best way possible and even just the little things like we had I remember I was just by myself taking a break and I saw these ants kind of crawling across this log like whoa this is awesome I got out my macro lens and I could see all the details and I'm laying on this log just taking pictures of ants and if I didn't have my camera I wouldn't have even you know really yeah, looked at thought anything yeah yeah but yeah so it really made me just look at everything in a new way a new perspective and spend more time appreciating all of those little moments and trying to capture them. So some people say that the camera is like a disconnect for them. They're focused on settings and all these things and they're not present. But for me, I've, I've always found that I, I feel like I'm more present and appreciate moments more and for longer periods of time with the camera. So I would even go out at night uh, on that first trip into the valley and have the moon coming over the valley and trying to capture that uh, completely in the dark. I don't think I had a tripod. It was all blurry and out of focus, but it just, I was just stoked to be out there and trying to capture it. And otherwise I just would have been asleep in my tent and, you know, not really experiencing those beautiful moments. So that was kind of the start of photography for me. I went back home and I was doing some community college classes, woodworking and graphic design and um, architectural, you know, classes. And I, I kind of dropped all those and switched to photography and really hit it full speed from there and started assisting other photographers and, uh, going home. I w I didn't just want the base knowledge that the classes were giving me. I would do research and I'd go to libraries and I'd do all these, anything I could to get more information. And, um, yeah, I just hit it full speed. Huh. How long ago was this? This was, yeah, sorry, my first trip to Yosemite was just over 10 years ago. Okay. That was my, I had no idea how to use a camera, so I'd probably been in school a year and a half at this point, taking film classes and studio lighting classes and a couple different things, had built a portfolio and was getting decent at photography, had I think even won a couple awards at that point. I was submitting contests and different things, but uh yeah, so there was a, he was the chief writer and editor for Surfer Magazine who was speaking to this journalism class, and I wasn't taking any of those classes, but I figured if there was a way for me to be able to learn and understand from a journalism perspective what they're looking for, because the writing and photos go hand in hand, how I can utilize that to take pictures that would connect the story better, then that would kind of give me a one-up in the industry 
and just figure out you know how to how to produce the right type of content for them to hopefully land a job uh yeah so he he was telling people how he had been a professional surfer and traveled the world to all these beautiful islands and crazy destinations that i had never even heard of then he was the as a writer for surfer magazine he'd get to go on all these trips and document everything and tell those stories and i was just sitting there thinking like wow this is literally the dream job like i can't believe how incredible his life is i had never really even left california i was just so focused on surfing and skateboarding and we didn't do any really big trips growing up uh, we drove to texas a couple times which <laughs> is pretty much just flat the whole way but yeah. hadn't seen much of the u.s let alone the world and just hearing these stories was just mind-blowing and I remember specifically, he was like, if there is one trip that meant more to me than any other trip I've ever been on in my life, and I just felt like he was talking directly to me, I was kind of at this point where I was sick of my jobs, I I wanted something different, more fulfilling, more in line with what I was passionate about, and I didn't really know what that was, and so he's sitting here saying, like, this is what meant more to me than anything I've ever done, and I was like, whatever he's about to say, like, this is my calling, this is what I have to do. And so I was just waiting for it. And he's like, out of everything, I did a solo road trip across the entire United States. And I was like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. Like, yeah. he's been all, all these crazy every, places, every place in the world, and just a road trip across the US. And he talked about just how much of a personal experience that was, just the different cultures and landscapes and I was like, okay, that's it. Like, I, I got to do this road trip, you know? And so that really stuck with me. And he talked for quite a bit longer. And I ended up getting a chat with him afterwards, after, you know, all the other students had kind of tried to connect with him. And I was kind of the last one there. I had my laptop with my images. I started chatting with him, showing him my work. I did a lot of like, they're called diptychs, where it's a portrait next to like an action shot of a surfer. Mm. I think I even had some paragliders in there from Tory Pines and different things. And I was trying to relate to him and show him that I was telling a story with my images by the portrait and then kind of what that person did. And after a while, he's skimming through and he's like, wait a minute, are these your images? And I was like, yeah, that's what I do. I'm a photographer. And he was like, I got to get you into my office. And wow. I was like, whoa, like I really didn't expect it to, to go anywhere. Uh, so sure enough, a week or two later, I'm in his office and he ended up presenting. He's like, I've been in this industry a long time. And this was Grind TV, Grind Media, which at the time was, I think right now it's called the Enthusiast Network, but it's kind of the umbrella company for surfer magazines, skateboarder, canoe and kayak, all these outdoor sports that I was kind of obsessed with growing up and I'm, I was just nervous being in the office. I'm like shaking. I'm like, I can't believe I'm in here. This is crazy. And he was, he kind of sat me down and was like, I had a chance to look through your work and I've, I've have this position that I never thought would ever exist because I've never seen somebody that really can produce the type of work that you're producing in such a broad spectrum. Hmm. But I want to give you the opportunity to basically be the first ever staff photographer for the entire network and wow. document everything. And I was just taken back. I had no idea. That was like the biggest compliment I could ever get sure. coming from somebody like that. Amazing. And 
I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. And I took a second and I was like, you remember that story you told about your favorite trip you've ever done was that road trip across the country that really stuck with me. Is that something you would recommend somebody like myself doing? And he kind of sat there and was like, if you have the chance to do that, there's always an excuse. There's always a reason, whether it's a mortgage or your dog or wife and kids or something. There's always a reason not to do something like that. He said, if you have that opportunity, you have to go for it and, and kind of just do it. So I sat there and I was like, okay, well, I have a huge respect. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'd like to maybe put that on hold and do this road trip and take off. And if the opportunity is still oh, there, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't even really know what I was doing at the time, just kind of going, going with it, but it felt like the right thing to do. And I was like, before I settle into this position and job, I feel like this might be my only time. And I think he was taken back too. He was like, yeah. whoa, like, how's he turning this down? I think I was thinking the same thing after I said it. Like, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> but uh, he sat there and he thought about it for a minute and he didn't even consult anybody else. He just was like, okay. He's like, how about this? Take your road trip go wherever you want to go, do whatever you were going to do. He's like, I know you're going to be taking pictures and documenting the whole thing. He's like, I'll cover the cost of your entire road trip and pay you X amount of dollars on top of that. If you just send us the images that you're shooting. Slam dunk. Like, what? Wow. Oh my it just, God. <laughs> it, it just blew me away. I was like, Oh, let me think about that. No, I was like, I'm I was in. just like mind blown. Yeah. So that's really what started. That was my first actual job that was in the career that I was passionate about. I was even doing real estate photography on the side and had assisted wedding photographers and all the product photography and studios and all these different things. But that was like, wow, this is kind of the opportunity of a lifetime. So packed up my truck. I had all my gear, climbing, you know, mountain biking, snowboard, surfboard, skateboard, everything. And uh, kind of just hit the road and was just traveling around doing landscape photography, night photography. I'd go into these small towns and just see what type of sports or activities people were doing, connect with the locals. Sometimes I'd link up with professionals. Sometimes it was just you know, weekend warriors and documenting their adventures and the landscape. And yeah, that kind of, kind of set me off in the path that really got me out here. And was that, um, you know, so Instagram, that stuff's around then that's 2009, 2010, I guess. Yeah. Somewhere, I think I'm bad with years, but, uh, kind of in the beginning ago. stages of Instagram, I think I had, I had one at that point. I wasn't, I was, I held off. I, I wasn't really super into it and just like, oh, I don't want to, I'm not big on sharing what I'm doing or I don't know. So most of this was going back to this guy at Grind and, yep. okay. And they had like a blog. We had started a blog series um, with my content. And so I was, that was really what kind of kicked off my social media. I started posting now that I was out and about doing cool stuff all the time and road mm -hmm. tripping. It was just a way for me to update even friends and family and just let them know where I was, what I was doing and almost a portfolio, just me showing my, my best clips and photos. And, uh, but yeah, some of the imagery and stories were actually grind had some awesome connections, obviously in the industry. So I remember there was multiple 
kind of blogs and stories that I did that got the front page of Yahoo News, which at the time was like the Huge. biggest search in engine. Mm -hmm. And so that was huge exposure for me they actually also connected me with gopro at the time like hey he's about to set off on this road trip you know can you hook him up with some cameras and got me that initial connection which was ended up being a huge catalyst to the social media world and building a following because once i had gotten some content sent them some photos i think we talked about this earlier but the very first image that GoPro actually shared on their Instagram page. Still at that time, they had, you know, a million plus followers. I had maybe like a thousand or something. And it was a strong image and it engaged really well. It was their actually highest engaged image they had ever posted. And that sent in 24 hours, I had gained, I think, 25,000 followers. Man. And so that was you struck gold. Yeah. That yeah. really was like, whoa, kind of a reality check of this is a great way to just get more exposure. It was my target audience, you know, everybody that was in the outdoor industry that wanted to, you know, see beautiful landscapes or kind of outdoor adventures. And so that was between Grind, getting stuff featured on their website and a couple magazine features getting stuff on, on Yahoo News and a couple other big outside sources like that and starting to work with different brands. Uh, they connected me with Cliff Bar and I got connected with Goal Zero, ended up building long-term relationships with all those companies. And yeah, them featuring my work was a great way to just build that audience and that exposure and kind of allowed me to continue on on the road trips, I, I built those relationships to where I could get kind of an annual contract with them and shoot photos for them that they could use for marketing and PR and social media. And so it was a great way. That was kind of at the beginning stages of, I guess, what you would now consider like an influencer. But I was able to utilize my social media page, which was continuing to slowly grow and create content for them that they could use on their social media channels as well so in the in the age of digital because you know back in the day it was all slide and film and you know it was an investment and you really had to i'm not a photographer so i'm saying mm -hmm. all this from you know just my own life and learning from jody and my partner for a long time who's who's a photographer and um but there's you know you really had to learn the craft how do you how do you, and obviously it's what, what you have done, but, you know, these days, you know, the iPhone X is mm -hmm. unbelievable. Like you're competing with the world yeah. uh, that has smartphones and they can do some pretty fun stuff. People can capture it because they're lucky or whatever. Yep. But, you know, how do you, how have you constantly had to kind of reinvent yourself or how do you stay ahead of that kind of wave because it, it, it was a huge not everybody survived that transition yeah. um you know the, there's always going to be the Ansel Adams out there that's just amazing but um you know how, how do you do you I'm leading us to paragliding in a in a very roundabout <laughs> way but you know there there's talent and there's hard work and there's both um, you know, do, do you, when you look back, did you just have a natural eye or was it just a ton of hard work? Both? Yeah, those are all great, great questions. And I think to summarize, 
I don't think I was technically like naturally gifted with photography. I, I went through a lot of classes and we got critiqued and my work at the beginning was definitely didn't stand out necessarily a, a, um, next to anybody else's. I think it was, and what a lot of the other sports had taught me, I was huge into skateboarding. That was my thing growing up and got to the point where I was doing 20 stair handrails and skating vert ramps and doing pretty big stuff. And I think that taught me that didn't come naturally necessarily to me either. But what I learned from skateboarding, it kind of taught me a bunch of life lessons that I've used throughout my career now to approach different things and just life in general. But my whole concept is with passion, dedication, and the belief that it's possible, you can really do anything that you want. So, and skateboarding taught me that just through hard work and doing things that my friends kind of laughed. And I, I was 12 years old and I showed them this magazine cover of this guy doing a 20 stair handrail. And I, I went out to my friends and I, I wasn't very good at skateboarding. I was like, I think I could do this. And it was like the biggest thing that had ever been done. And they're like, you're crazy. You're an idiot, you know, like whatever. And I was like, no, it, it seems logical. If you can do a five stair handrail, you can do a 20 stair. You just have to balance longer. And they're like, no way. Like you're crazy. But that same mentality, I ended up going, I think it was like eight years later and doing the same trick on the same handrail is this cool backstory. But, uh, yeah, only a few people in the world had ever ended up. It's this handrail that is called El Toro. It's a, a famous 20 stair handrail and did the same trick on the same rail that I'd seen on the cover all those years ago. And, um, but yeah, so I think with just hard work and dedication and just really pushing, I think it's a lot of leaps of faith. And whether it was me setting out in my van with $81.10 to my name or pursuing all these different sports, I do a lot of slacklining or highlining now where you're walking a slackline across these crazy huge canyons. And uh, it's just pushing past those perceived boundaries, I think. And I guess, yeah, to circle back to your, to your question, uh, I think it's just a lot of hard work for me to, there is a lot of competition out there now in the photographer, you know, realm and social media, every kid with an iPhone or a GoPro or, a, you know, mirrorless camera are using the exact same tools that I'm using. And so it is a, almost a, it could be seen as a scary position for me to be in. Like, wow, I really have to continue. I can't feel safe i don't think uh, i have to continue to constantly evolve and push myself and that's part of what paragliding was to me i think too i'd seen it years ago i grew up in san diego around torrey pines and it always intrigued me but just a was something that always did intrigue me and i was really excited to do it but just finding new ways to approach landscapes and to get out there and push myself and meet up with other people and see landscapes in a way that not many people in the world get to see them and being able to hopefully bring my unique perspective into that and capture that share it with a large audience I'm all about like a human element in the landscape and for me whether that's night photography or just nat national parks but to have a human element in the landscape where you're both flying through the landscape I mean that's like the ultimate dream me. Don't you think like with your, you know, with your background, the, the first big, um, 
paragliding film I did, you know, we'd done quite a few smaller ones, but the first bigger budget film and more serious and red cameras and all that was, was 500 miles to nowhere with a very good friend of mine, Michael Paul Jones, who was, you know, a huge Hollywood shooter. And he was just fascinated by it and he wanted to come out and shoot it, you know? So, um, but we had, we had Jody on that trip and because she was a pilot, um, you know, Mike was super astute in telling his, you know, his uh, right-hand man, this guy, Jeremy Cannon, who's super talented as well. But, you know, he was constantly going, Jeremy, just go where Jody's going because she's yeah. going to shoot the stills. She's going to get, she knows all the angles because yep. she's a pilot. And um, do you think that that's really been a huge factor with you? Like, you know, I think of somebody like Jimmy Chin, you know, the reason he knows how to shoot climbing so well is he's a pretty good climber. You know, Definitely. he's, a, he's, he knows how to, he knows where to be in the mountains. Um, and he must, can get must there. have a huge, and he can get there. Yeah. Right. Most people can't get there to right. get the shot. So yeah, that's a great point. And somebody like Jimmy Chin is, uh, someone who I've always looked up to because of that. They're not just sitting on the sidelines trying to capture something with a long lens of someone up on a wall or on these huge, you know, mountain routes or mountaineering in general, he's out there with them and he's almost at the same level as some of these top athletes in the world. And I think that does give him that unique perspective and the, get the angles that nobody else can get and really just understand the sport and how gnarly it is and be able to translate that through the imagery to tell the best story. If you don't know what it's like to be out there, how can you tell that story I, I think it's a lot harder and there's more of a disconnect so with everything that I shoot I try to be competent in that sport or that activity to really understand it to document it the right way it builds a better connection and relationship between you and the other person and for me it's just really fun I don't want to just be sitting around on the sidelines I want to be out there whether I have a camera or not so uh, yeah it all has tied together and Jimmy's a person that I've looked up to for that in that respect a lot but um yeah I'd be if I was just sitting on the ground shooting paragliding all day there's not too many angles I could necessarily get but if I can you know be up high thermaline looking down or just uh volbiv and get to these crazy places that uh not many people get get to otherwise there's no trails there's no roads there's no access um even part of one of my goals is ppg for that reason as well and just to be able to especially sunrise and sunset be able to get a motor and get up in the sky and approach these different landscapes just with a again a unique perspective and a unique eye and even get out to some of those places that you really can't get to any other way mm. so we'll we'll get more into the flying but i, I want to spend a few minutes on so i got to know you because of your van you know, hashtag van life. Yeah. Uh, I saw like the, the, the very original one, I think. And, uh, this is, I think more or less when you started really blowing up and, yep. um, on social media and stuff, but you, you had quite an adventure there, right? It was like four years yeah. in a van. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I had been working for grind TV, grind media, and had just been living out of my truck. This was really before the whole van life movement and there wasn't all the sprinter vans and you know every every other car you see out in Moab wasn't a, a adventure van but I was out there I was on and it it ended up being a, about a 100 day road trip in my truck all over the western US and it was incredible but I found that living out of my truck 
was a little challenging in some ways. I mean, editing photos, I was like laying down. I had a kind of a platform thing in the back of my truck and I was trying to edit photos and I had all my gear and was just laying on my back with my computer on my stomach. I couldn't even sit up or trying to change my pants, you know, like in, you're like laying down trying to put pants. It's just like not the best long-term goal, at least for me. So I, at one point I had seen this adventure van drive by. I think it, it was probably a sports mobile, like one of the original sports mobiles at the time, this lifted Ford, uh, fully decked out with solar panels and off-road four by four and ladders. And I just saw it go by and I was like, whoa, that's what I need. Like if I'm going to do this full time, like it just has a little kitchen, I could stand up. And I was like, that's the dream right there. And so I put it on, I had started creating uh, like a vision board and got really into that. And I looked online and I think I found sports mobiles and they're like, you know, $150,000 for the low end one. And I was living paycheck to paycheck and honestly wasn't getting paid on time. All And especially in the, you know, the surf and skate industry, you don't necessarily yeah. get paid all the time. It's just a bunch of bros and homies and oh sorry dude i forgot to send the check out <laughs> and yeah i was there was times where i was struggling and uh didn't have enough money to buy groceries or pay for a shower do laundry and even if i wanted to give up and buy gas and drive home i, I didn't even have enough money to pay for a full tank of gas but and so a hundred and fifty thousand dollar van totally which is outrage. totally out of the question but for some reason I still stuck it on my vision board and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get this, but I just know that I'm going to make this happen. And months went by, I was looking on Craigslist and oh, used for $95,000 and I just, there's just no way. And probably six months later, you know, I told my parents and a couple friends like, this is my dream. And my grandma called me who lives in Texas and she was like, you know, I have this camper van just sitting in my driveway if you want it you can just have it <laughs> and I was like what like I, I totally didn't even remember but I was like wait a minute they send me a picture and I was thinking in my head like it's not going to be some adventure mobile like epic thing and she sends me a couple pictures and it's a full-on like 20 year old grandma camper van with um <clears throat> like blue shag carpet on yeah, the inside mood and, lighting yeah just like <laughs> you know definitely not this lifted epic thing and uh, but i thought about it for a little bit and i was like you know i have a background i'm pretty handy i was like there's not really any other way i can make this happen so i was like all right i'll, I'll fly over to texas and i i want to pick this up and hang out for a little bit and drive it back and i feel like i could make it look a little more adventurous than it is. So I sold my Tacoma, took the money from that, which is about $8,000, I think, and put it all into the van and tore it down to the metal pretty much on the inside and built out cabinets and flooring and really kind of customized it to what I thought it needed to be. I lifted it, put off-road tires and ladders and solar panels, tried to emulate that first one that I had seen. <laughs> and But I remember when I would first drove it back to San Diego, it, it was that grandma camper van and my friends are just like what are you doing like you've lost it you know like <laughs> this is just ridiculous and again because of van movement it wasn't really a thing necessarily and it was just this like beat up you know weird looking van and they're like oh it looks like a creeper mobile you know like 
and <laughs> nobody really saw the vision but i was like just wait like i'm gonna fix it up it's gonna be awesome and sure enough yeah a couple months later i set off the night before my birthday um with 81 dollars and 10 cents to my name and again it was one of those like leap of faith moments where i knew if i stayed in san diego it just i wouldn't be able to produce content and get the imagery that i needed so i needed to be on the road and i was still working with grind but they were as i said not paying the best all the time i was just barely getting by but i was like i just need to fully commit to this if i want to try to make something happen and set off in it i was like i might be gone three months and be over it or i might be gone three years i really had no idea and it turned into a four-year road trip all around the united states and canada so and, yeah. and do you attribute that to really the kind of the career you've built? I mean, that kind of um, stepping off. I the saying that comes to mind is, you know, the uh, boats are safe in harbor, but that's not what boats are built for. You exactly. know, you just have to, you know, um, when I first set off at sail, I mean, if I had listened to the people in the marina, I'd still yeah. be sitting there. You yeah. Know? Oh, no, you got to have that. You got to have that. You got to have wind vane. You got to have that. You know, Definitely. Just, you never go anywhere. Yeah. And yeah, you have that same, I think, spirit and kind of background on the water, obviously. And I know you ha you have the van as well and have done quite a few road trips. But yeah, I think it's just a combination of the things I, I kind of learned was, uh, like I said, with skateboarding, there were so many other, even with photography, like you really have to take those leaps of faith if you want to uh, get anywhere, push past those perceived boundaries, like I said. If you stay in your comfort zone, uh, nothing, nothing like they say, nothing great comes from your comfort zones. You really have to push past that. And it is, uh, you have to still be smart and assess all of those risks. But at the same time, yeah, sometimes it's just going for it and fully committing. And I think what I've learned over the years through everything that I've done is it's those moments that I was terrified of something and I went for it anyways and pushed past those fears and just fully committed that ended up turning into the best experiences of my life and that the van and taking off was was one of those moments for sure. So uh we have pretty similar backgrounds when it comes to that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh and also I think similar where we've gotten to in a way so you go through this time and it's really footloose and fancy free because you got nothing to lose i like being in a position where you've got nothing to lose but then four years later um you're making money now you've 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 landed cliff bar and these other companies and you know you're making money and you bring on an assistant and another assistant now um still feels the same way more pressure yeah, that's a great question. I think the having a team is still pretty new to me. I've had my original assistant, Whitney, for two years now, and she's part-time. Um, and then brought on my close friend, David Hatfield, full-time to be kind of my agent and rep and really help in all aspects. And it is a little bit more... It's it's definitely a little more scary knowing that I have that overhead and even I recently got rid of the van I gave it away in a, a contest wanted to pay it forward like my grandma had done with me and decided I was kind of tired of living in something the size of a walk-in closet you know for four years straight I couldn't even fully stand up 
And again, it was, you know, the experience of a lifetime. And I credit my grandma with giving me, kind of getting me where I'm at. If, if I wouldn't have had that van, it would have been a totally different story. But yeah, I was ready for something new. So I settled back down in San Diego. I'm renting a place, uh, got a normal vehicle again and have hired a team. And yeah, it's, it is a little more intimidating just knowing that I have to consistently have money coming in and it's not this free spirit kind of go with the wind like I'll just take a job when it comes and a lot of the stuff in my industry is last minute Uh, but yeah that's a lot more intimidating and does add some stress with knowing that there's other people's livelihood depending on you and your business and your creativity and making it all come together and just the business in general so yeah uh, one more business question, and then we've, we've got to switch to flying here. But uh, I just I think it's fascinating. I think the listeners will find it fascinating. Um, the do your jobs, clients, you know, gigs, whatever we call them, do they always come from the company, or do they come from athletes too? Like, do do, do athletes reach out to you and go, "Hey, I need X and X"? Because in my own personal contracts, there's never any budget for that. I've got to supply, you know, I've got to supply right. the imagery and social media imagery is always kind of free. You know, it's just something, it's just in my contract. I got to do that. You know, there's, there's extra stuff sometimes where and it's in the contract that if I need to hire a photographer, that's on them. If we're doing a specific project for X company, but, um, just wondering that, that cause that just seems to have shifted. I don't know if that's just me or the, the industry. Yeah, that's a great point. I would say for me, it's a little bit all over the place. I built relationships with quite a few athletes to where if we're just brainstorming some, if or even if just the athlete is like, hey, I got this crazy idea. I want you to be a part of it. I've built those relationships where they they know me, they trust me. We work really well together. They know that we produce really good content. And so hopefully if they have something cool, they know I'll be stoked to at least hear about it and hopefully go on this crazy adventure and produce content and just have an overall really good experience. And, and then are you figuring out, sorry to butt in, but yeah. are you then post selling that or you got it all pre-sold? Are you, are you, are you approaching that as, Hey, this is a great project. This is a cool person. I'm just going to shoot it and see what we can do with it. Again, it's a little bit of everything. Sometimes the person's like, Oh, I'm working with, black diamond or patagonia and we're putting i'm presenting this project and i want to add you to the team and so it'll all be included in the proposal um and they do have budget and you know there's deliverables and it's all planned out ahead of time and sometimes and especially in the beginning it's a lot more like hey let's go do something rad produce really cool content and hope that somebody's going to be stoked on it and the more i guess you the more you've produced and the more you have the name in the industry and have built that kind of trust factor to where they know that you're going to go out and get something, then they're able to back it beforehand and be like, okay, these guys are going out. We know they'll get something cool. We can help fund the project and can contribute to that. And a lot of times it's honestly trying to pull from a couple different sponsors and be like, Hey, we have this idea. Let's get this company and this company like, you know, this clothing company and this shoe brand and this gear brand and make it this project where we can incorporate all of them organically and produce content for them and 
um, hopefully get some budget enough to, to make the project happen. So, and then sometimes you have agencies reach out. I just did a project with Toyota. Uh, we were able to actually integrate paragliding into that. I did some surfing, paragliding, and highlining all in one day. But sometimes agencies approach me or other athletes and we're like, hey, we have this really cool company that's looking for whether it's an athlete or a content creator. We think you're great for this. And and you kind of go from there. What's the project about? What's the deliverables budget? And you kind of break it down, see if it's a good fit. I, I honestly turned down, I would say over the years, it's been probably 90% of jobs or proposals that come to me because I've been so passionate about staying true to myself and my brand and that organicness. Uh, we kind of talked about this earlier, but just companies that are really a good fit for me and my lifestyle. And I think that my audience would want to see. I don't want to kind of overwhelm people with these spammy, cheesy commercials. I want it to be something that I'm stoked on, something that I already use and integrate in my life and try and connect with those companies. I think overall that would be kind of a tip that I would give anyone is try to, if you're already using a, a product and a brand, like try and work with those companies because those are the ones that'll organically already be in all of your content and it's not going to be some weird thing to have to integrate you know something cheese an underwear line or just something cheesy whatever <laughs> it might be that you, you're not going to see or use or whatever it is um and just yeah just a natural fit so but yeah i, I don't know if that fully answered it but it's it's a whole spectrum of of different things sometimes we reach out to the to the brands sometimes they reach out to us um so it's a little bit of everything and that's part of why it has been intimidating like i said with that overhead because it's not it's not always consistent and now i need a little bit more of that consistency but uh yeah so trying to find outside ways to make sure that i have that stable income has been important too but yeah how uh Okay, I want to not forget my second question here, but the first one is how much of your time is spent shooting versus all the other BS? Yeah. Would, would you call it BS? I mean, it's the it's the it's the editing. It's the, part of the job. The, yeah, or, yeah, the, it's the computer time. Yeah. You know. And so nowadays, people see these. I think not only myself, but anyone on social media who they oh this person's living the dream or traveling the world and staying in all the coolest places, doing the coolest things. And the reality, because I am friends with quite a few of those people and, you know, have somewhat of a little bit of that lifestyle myself, it's a lot of back-end work, especially if you don't have a team helping you. You got to be the one sending the emails and editing the photos and researching the best time for sunrise or where the Milky Way is going to be or what the weather conditions are like. And it's a ton of time. I would say... Uh, 50 to 75 plus percent of my time is actually on a computer or indoors somewhere trying to get Wi-Fi and send emails and upload photos on a slow Wi-Fi wherever I can find it in some crazy country or just in a small cafe or I use libraries a lot when I was on the road. They always have decent Wi-Fi and a nice mellow place to sit and relax. But um, yeah, it's a it's a large part of what I do. It's not just this like, oh, he's living the dream and on vacation 24-7 while you're there. And in these crazy places, 
you got to produce content no matter what the conditions are like. You have people paying you good money like this guy's going here like and so there's a lot of pressure you can't just be lounging by the pool or by the beach like you have to produce no matter what it is and and I take pride in my work and my quality I want to make sure that the client is getting you know the highest quality possible so yeah for me it's it's go time and it's no sleep because I love shooting the night sky I want to be up for sunrise and I want to shoot golden hour and and midday like for different things for flying it's good so it's it's almost like just never ending and then you got to go back and edit the photos and send them off so yeah it's pretty it's a pretty crazy adventure 24 7 okay i'm gonna ask you a little tongue-in-cheek question here um how does a guy even given your reach and your background in photography I don't mean to sound this like a slam, but how do you get a Toyota commercial when today, I believe, was your first XC flight ever? <laughs> there's, yeah, a lot yeah. of li- there's a lot of listeners out there that are like, what the? F-? <laughs> Definitely. And that's a great question. Um, and yeah, we haven't really talked about my paragliding experience, I yeah. think, in general. Well, so. that, that was, this is the sort of <laughs> the transition. Intro, yeah. yeah. So I'm at, uh, I think, just about 100 hours. Uh, and done some mountain sites uh being in san diego i started at torrey pines i did quite a bit of kiting even before then and tried to you know listen to you guys and um build those fundamentals and everything but yeah just started um flying you know doing the mountain sites and today was my first kind of intro into xc i think we got about 10 miles or so but uh yeah it's been a little bit over a year and um, I thought I'd transition kind of straight to PPG. Uh, my goal was to be able to take some camera gear up with me, and so access. it was really it was really photography. When when you came back to it after the tandem, uh, the years later, it was it was more mostly to get into PPG and take and shoot. It was yeah. It was always I think everything for me is both for the experience and the photography. But yeah, I was like, how cool to be able to fly and go anywhere you want and take my camera and and capture that. And just having a motor on my back, I felt like I'd be able to reach places that I maybe couldn't reach without a motor. And so that really intrigued me. But once I started, I, th- I thought I'd kind of do it the, to me, what seemed like the smart and safe way to learn how to control the wing uh, before strapping a motor to my back and add just another element. So learned how to how to kite and ground handling and I wanted to get my launches and landing and everything dialed before again strapping a giant motor to my back and once I started flying I was like this is actually really cool and I could really get into this whole side of it and yeah I've kind of been been hooked on just that so um today being your first mountain flight what are the um what are the things that are first xc not necessarily sorry sorry first xc flight um you know i I think it's fascinating how people get into the sport and what they learn early on and uh you know i always have this 50 hour question you know what what could what would you do differently if you went back to your 50 hour self you're you're there basically you know because a lot of the hours i know are tory ridge soaring and it's kind of different than xc flying but um what how is your learning process gone and what are what are you enjoying about it and what do you feel like it, it may be missing oh that's a great question i tried to even before going to tory 
do I had friends in the sport and they told me you have to be able to control your wing on the ground before you get in the air and so I went out with buddies and just borrowed a wing and started kiting in the park uh, my buddy Dave just threw me in wild conditions like 15 plus mile an hour like I had kited once or twice like all right have fun like <laughs> just wanted me to learn you know and get kind of drug around and um, learn how to control the wing I grew up flying trainer kites and even doing a little bit of kiteboarding or uh, variations of that so I knew the wind window and I knew a little bit about controlling a wing in the air but obviously with a paraglider there's a lot of different elements to that and it's just a lot bigger so um, if you do something wrong it's gonna it's gonna let you know and drag you around so that was a huge part of my foundation was just kiting and ground handling. I think I had 40 plus hours before I even went to Torrey Pines mm. um, to try and even talk to them. I just knew it would hopefully speed up the rest of my process if I just knew how to control the wing properly. And and I think that's really helped. Uh, even my first day there, uh, the, the instructors were just like, yeah, we can tell you know what you're doing. I could forward launch and reverse launch and um, and do all kinds of, you know, ground handling that most people when they first start out sure. weren't, weren't able to do. Uh, but I think I've become, I've flown mostly at Torrey Pines and I feel relatively confident and comfortable in that situation, but I know that that's not the real world and that's not what any other site in the world basically is going to be like. And, but it was such a great training ground to practice top landing and different approach patterns and, and just really getting comfortable with how the wing will, will react in different situations and doing, you know, little spirals and, um, just different things like that. And really understanding the fundamentals, even on the ground and in the air, and then now I know that as I'm getting into mountain flying, it's just such a different world to go from ridge soaring to thermal flying and XC. And I feel like even as I think you saw today, when I felt uncomfortable or I wasn't getting any thermals, my instinct was to go close to the ridge uh, because I've been dependent on and just ridge. comfortable. Yeah, when uh, ridge soaring, uh, when I think... Uh, the goal is if I were to push out a little bit, I could, I could find those thermals. So kind of transitioning and understanding a little bit more of the, the thermals and, uh, what's, uh, the different reaction points and where those thermals are coming from. And I think now I really need to continue to progress and, and learn more about the actual mountain flying and, and real world situations that are everything but Tory Pines. How how are you approaching learning now? Because you go through. You know, I've often thought it's kind of tricky if you you know you go through your your instruction instruction course and you get your P two and you get signed off and then it's like fly bird fly you yeah. know but you're still really young and really new and you don't know that much um, and uh, so how how you know if you if you don't hook into mentors and good mentors and you know the community it sounds like you've got a really good community down in san diego but um you know with all this you know your work going on and all this other stuff going on how are you, how are you approaching training improvement safety 
Yeah, that's a great question as well. And it is basically what you're talking about. I think with anything that I've done, it's surrounding myself with people who are better than me in every aspect. And I never want to be the best in the room or the best in, in the area because you won't learn anything necessarily. And I'm someone who always wants to learn and grow and there's always ways to progress. So for me and paragliding specifically, yeah, just getting myself into the community, making sure I'm going out with the right guys who know the the launch sites, the mountains, the weather, and asking questions constantly when you get there, making sure that you're going on the right days that are, you know, moderate, mellow days, hopefully, and not, you know, this is extreme or could kind of turn on or OD at any point. And uh, I do have travels that kind of interfere with, I can't just be paragliding isn't 100% of my life. And I, I don't think it necessarily can be at this point because I'm running my own business and traveling and incorporating different things. So it's, I think making sure that I'm aware of that as well. And if I come back from a, a month of not flying, not to just go, all right, let's go charge a big mountainside and try XC for the first time. Cause it's a good day for that. It's like, okay, let me go back to Tori get comfortable ground handling and, and launching and landing and landing patterns and then go out to a mountainside and just sight fly on a mellow day and um, that slow progression and transition and, and making sure that I'm staying safe and in my my relative comfort zone like pushing myself enough to where I'm progressing with the the right mentors and people around me but not going too extreme too fast and, and making sure that even when I land I'm asking you know to be critiqued and what could I do better both internally asking myself those questions and hopefully asking the people around me on yeah just just how to progress and San Diego is a great community and um, for paragliding right now and we uh, started uh, to there was a like a safety meeting about yeah just everybody learning the basics of like first response almost it wasn't like an actual first response course but it's like hey here's at least a little bit more knowledge and information and we want they want everybody to be able to help out if there if there is something that happens so bringing a little bit more of that awareness um, to the community making sure that everyone's active and involved and can hopefully help each other if something does go wrong and there's kind of a protocol to that and um yeah because it is inherently dangerous and the more everyone's heads up and on the same page and knows what to do if if somebody were to go down hopefully there's somebody there that can that can help out i know if if i went down i'd want somebody that kind of knew what to do rather than just being by myself there so you so you've participated in um a lot of different sports and uh i forget the term already for this 20 stair Oh yeah, it, just El Toro. That sounds like a gnarly yeah. move, yeah. So, how does this, how does paragliding compare on that kind of Richter scale of radness? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, everything from skateboarding, twenty stair handrails to walking across slack lines, thousands of feet above the Yosemite Valley, and even I took on free diving um, a couple years ago. I was actually scared of the ocean, um, and push free diving and diving, you know, 40, 50 feet down and going through caves on a single breath and had to overcome that fear. But I think it, 
it all has helped me with paragliding, uh, understand myself mentally and physically and what I can handle and when I feel uncomfortable, kind of staying calm and relaxed and assessing situations. Because I think if you, if you start freaking out and your adrenaline's going and you're scared, you're not going to make the best decisions. So being able to stay calm and relaxed and focused and assess things has been a, a huge part of, I think, helping and hopefully continuing to help uh, me stay safe in all of these different sports. But yeah, paragliding, especially, I mean, the mountain flying's still so new to me. Uh, Torrey Pines, I think there's that, that comfort factor of, oh, you can just go to the beach, you know, 300 feet down and, and be fine. But there's so many more unknowns uh, once you hit the mountains that I'm still I'm still nervous, like in a good way, and I know that I have to respect the environment and the conditions and and assess those properly. So I think even today I was I was talking after our flight and was like I didn't even take a single picture. I didn't pull out my phone because I, I knew that I was uncomfortable uh, or not. I wanted to stay safe and be present and just do all there's so many distract if you pull out a gopro and you're taking selfies and all these things it's just going to distract so um i'm still at that point where i i want to be 100 percent present um and safe and progress Hmm. um does it scare you more or less than other stuff yeah i realize i maybe didn't even answer that question (laughs) um oh it's a different feeling because it's just so it's beautiful and peaceful and you're just that's part of what i love about paragliding is just so incredible and relaxing but at the same time if you're starting to sink out or you're scratching and there's this um i think that's when it gets intimidating and it should be intimidating when you're low versus when you're high obviously so yeah it's um it's pretty up there, especially, especially I feel like I'm a lot more out of my element than in other situations. So we have to yeah. revisit this after <laughs> in a year. Uh, if you start doing a ton of XC flying, I want to see if you still say it's relaxing. Oh I, yeah. I don't often find, <laughs> I don't often find like the kind of flights that I do. I don't find them relaxing necessarily yeah. like the end of the day when there's a glass off or, yep. you know, or having a nice sledder in the evening, of course, you know, but I find, I find like, you know, big XC days is like going to battle. Oh yeah. What you're doing is another level. Well, (laughs) I mean, it's just, I, I, I like that because when I, you know, most people, when they take a tandem, they, they say, Oh, it's so quiet. It's so relaxing. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's not the sport I participate in anymore. (laughs) And that's what I'm finding with, I mean, if I, I've mostly just done sight flying even at mountains so I can thermal up and I'm not trying to go anywhere. So then I'm just cruising and find the next thermal I'm hanging out. So, uh, and I've just gone on good days and had good lift. And so there has been that element of like, Oh, this is pretty cool. But once I get low or yeah, even today, as we started to XC, I'm like, Whoa, this is intense. Like, where's the bailout or yeah just there's a million different factors so yeah i know that's that's where i'm at that transitional period again where it's like okay it's back to everything being intense and a million different factors everywhere but that's what i love about it too so i 
imagine uh, because of your you know huge following uh, and uh, we don't need to go back to that but you know you've got a, a ton um that there will be a lot of people listening to this that are not pilots you know yeah. and most of the the podcast is is most of our listeners are of course pilots at every level you know from your guys level to all the way up yeah. you know and um what would you say to the folks listening that that are maybe like, wow, this paragliding sounds pretty interesting. What would you say to the, you know, the, uh, the folks who, who don't know what it's all about? I would say it's an incredible experience and there's obviously nothing else like it, but if you do decide to take it on, make sure you do it the right way and don't just buy a wing and watch a YouTube video and huck yourself off a mountain. I think it's all about safety and surrounding yourself with the right mentors and going through the, the proper safety. But, um, yeah, because there is that risk, but the reward is just incredible. And the community is incredible. That's part of what I love about this too, is coming up to Santa Barbara and, uh, hanging out and meeting new people and seeing new landscapes. So yeah, it's, it's for sure something I want to do the rest of my life. And, I'm just taking it slow to make sure that I do it the right way so that I can do it the rest of my life. But yeah, there's, there's really nothing else like it. So I encourage, yeah, take a tandem, see if you like it and definitely, uh, dive in and do it the right way. But it's, it's incredible. Travis, thanks. It's a yeah. great place to end. Uh, it's awesome meeting you. Good luck with your progression. Uh, I'd love to check in with you again in a year or so. And, uh, but yeah, have fun at cloud base and, and, uh, keep chasing it. Thank you so much, and yeah, hopefully we can get up to more adventures soon. I really appreciate it. Cool. I hope you enjoyed that. Always fun to sit down with these great pilots in different parts of the world. Super inspiring. As always, all we ask for is a buck a show. If you're getting something out of the cloud-based mayhem, there are many ways you can support it, either financially uh, through PayPal and soon to be just directly through our website. We'll have details of that up pretty soon. Uh, but if you can't support us financially, we totally understand this will remain free as long as we can do it. Uh, but you can support it in many other ways. You can give us on a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you listen to your podcast. That really goes a long ways. Uh, you can blog about it on your own blog. You can uh, post about it on social media, share it with your friends, talk about it on the way to launch. I know many, many of you are doing that. I really appreciate it. And another way you can support us is through our store. We've just got a whole new load of awesome Patagonia t-shirts for men and women and a whole new box of super styly uh, trucker hats by recaps each one is totally unique i uh, got a whole bunch more colors that seem to be more in favor uh so go to cloudbasedmayhem.com click on the store link and uh get some cool swag that's another great way to support the show um but yeah get behind us you know we're doing this directly just through you instead of sponsors because i just can't stand having that whole sponsor thing at the top of the show and i want you to know that it's a authentic conversation and it's just opinions and they're not being skewed by advertising dollars which i think is a pretty toxic uh thing that's happening going on right now globally with all the stuff going on with facebook and and others so anyway we'd like to do it direct we appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next one cheers mm -hmm.